The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome Welcome, to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be be brave, and be fearless, let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome Welcome, welcome. to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome back. This is Seema Vasa. This is the fourth episode of my four-part series on data quality, which has been sponsored by Imperium. Again, if you're just tuning in, the main mission of this series is really to talk to leaders from adjacent industries and get their perspectives on how they're managing data quality, how they are ensuring that they have the right practices in place, and just perspectives about the future. In today's episode, I speak with Vedant Misra, who is part of OpenAI, and we talk a little bit about the history of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and then more specifically, how data quality plays a factor in AI. Take a listen. I'm really excited about this session of our data quality series that's sponsored by Imperium. We are going to take a closer look at AI, understanding its evolution, breaking down some of the terminology and kind of conceptual themes about around AI and obviously how it might impact or help improve data quality. Today, I'm joined by Vedant Misra, who is an engineer managing the reasoning and algorithm team at OpenAI, as well as Charlie O'Leary, who is the CEO of Imperium, and who's really spearheading and shaping this data quality series that we're bringing to you by Data Gurus. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Seema. Hi, Charlie. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you, Seema. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you. And Vedant and Charlie, you guys go way back, right? That's right. We worked together on a company a few years ago. That was the startup that we were uh, working on. The sort of mission for that company was to help build new kinds of language products using what was at the time an emerging and exciting new technology called deep learning. And so we were focused on trying to personalize language for people in the sales and marketing setting and really enjoyed working with Charlie on that. Yeah. And and Seema, one of the first people I was thinking about for this series when we talked about you know, leveraging, talking about AI was Vedant because he's the one that actually was able to explain it to me. And actually, I was able to understand it. <laughs> I, he might say I didn't really understand it, but I thought I did. So. <laughs> There's, you know, I think people who can translate really hard stuff and make other people who don't understand it in a level of detail and have them be able to consume and digest it is an incredible skill. Okay, so give us an idea of what open AI is. That's where you currently are today. That's right. So OpenAI is an artificial intelligence research startup. We were founded about four years ago. Our mission is to develop safe artificial general intelligence, which refers to a sort of moonshot technology. The word general in there is pretty important. And the hope is that we can replicate the sort of intelligence that's in the human brain using deep neural networks and see if it's possible to scale up that intelligence maybe and unlock all kinds of new technologies for humanity in the future. That's sort of the big vision. We also want to ensure that 
as artificial intelligence advances towards that objective, the deployment of that technology is done in a sort of maximally helpful, safe, and sort of egalitarian way. So it's sort of a dual-pronged mission, a very sort of moonshot goal. But uh, we think that we're very excited about the direction of the way and the way that artificial intelligence is moving and about the way things could go in the next few years. Or if you, you know, it's unclear how long this could take, but definitely an exciting project to be working on. Okay, so I'm going to break down a couple of words just so I understand. When you say in a safe way, meaning it's in the hands of people who can use it responsibly, or tell me more about what the word safe means. Yeah, so figuring out exactly what safety is in this context is a difficult question. There are a few dimensions along which people think about it. I think one dimension is the sort of dystopian, apocalyptic, killer robot scenario. So that one, I think, is pretty far-fetched because it feels like the only way we end up in that situation is if we've built a system that's so amazing that we trusted implicitly for a long, long time and engineered into our entire society, and then it rises up against us because it decides that it's the right thing for it to do. And so, you know, it's possible that we could end up in that kind of world, but it seems like a concern that's so much further off than sort of more immediate safety concerns. So more immediate safety concerns involve the ways that a variety of agents are using artificial intelligence even today. So for example, the application of uh, machine vision and perception systems to surveillance is of utmost concern from a sort of civil rights perspective. And there are state actors and governments that are using this technology already in a sort of broad-based and very expansive way. There's concerns about the disruption of the labor market, which is also safe in a different way in terms of making sure that our society can adapt to this technology and that the way that we're deploying it is not disruptive to you know, what we all think should be happening. We don't want you know, massive unemployment and for people to be disrupted and not be able to support their families. And these you know, people have talked about labor market concerns. So that's one big dimension along which we think you know, people are thinking about safety. A third very critical uh, way to think about it is when we train these systems, they ultimately learn from data, which means that the information that goes in is numbers and what comes out is numbers. And so what they're learning is ultimately represented in the space of math. And it's not always the case that the math these systems have learned maps onto the values that we want them to learn or the things that we want them to learn. And so it's important to think about how we can get the math to align more closely with what we actually want these systems to learn. And to give you a quick example of this, you know, if you take, it was a major update for people not that long ago, that if you take one of these state-of-the-art image classifiers that can learn to differentiate cats from dogs from boats and trucks, you could, you know, change a single pixel in one of these images in an imperceptible way to humans or apply a tiny amount of noise to this image in a way that definitely doesn't change what it looks like to a person, but you'd completely confuse the algorithm. And so in this case, the math that the system has learned is different from what we wanted it to learn. And so that's another sort of dimension to think about safety. Wow, that was a loaded question and a really great answer. So thank you for that. Absolutely. (laughs) And then you really made the point of saying general in your mission of OpenAI is really important as well. That's right. So if you think about the kinds of things that artificial intelligence systems are able to do today, they seem to be able to replicate parts of what the human brain can do. For example, anytime you upload a photo into the cloud, into Google Photos or iCloud, and you can then go and search for photos of your dad wearing a suit or photos of your dog by the pool 
all of which is possible today, that's because there's a machine that has learned to look at what's happening in a picture. And so the phenomena that are implemented in the human visual cortex and the human auditory cortex are effectively replicated in deep neural networks. And what we're trying to do is extend from there to a world in which uh, deep neural networks can perform much more of what humans can do. And so that's where the general component comes in because humans demonstrate a remarkable ability to you know, set goals, plan, adapt to constantly changing environment, and handle a vast amount of uncertainty. And so pushing towards systems that can do those sorts of things seems like where we could you know, deliver the most economic value and build the most transformative technology. And so we're trying to push towards general intelligence in that way. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about the evolution of AI. You know, give us a little bit of a background, if you will, in terms of your perspective as to how we are here today as it relates to artificial intelligence. Absolutely. So I think, you know, looking back at this, at the history of artificial intelligence from the lens of what's happened over the last 10 years, it makes me want to sort of track the thought process about deep neural networks in particular, or about neural networks in particular, uh, because they've been sort of the most successful phenomenon over the last decade or so. And so this field really kicked off in the early, let's say, 50s. A bunch of people got together in the mid-50s at a conference in, in, at Dartmouth focused on understanding artificial intelligence. And it basically just turned out to be a very, very long brainstorming session where some of the biggest sort of thought leaders in the field who ended up making major and influential contributions got together and started just hashing out what artificial intelligence could be. Uh, this includes John McCarthy, who founded LISP, Claude Shannon, who invented information theory, Ray Solomonoff, who invented algorithmic probability. So these are all people who at the time were not sure what this, should, this would be, and they kind of just wanted to hash out the basic ideas. And they got together for about a couple of months, and they realized this was going to be a lot harder than it looked. But they laid the groundwork for much of the uh, theory and advancements that came later. What's happened since the 50s is that excitement about artificial intelligence has and then blown up again and then waned again. And now we're sort of in this resurgence for a third time. And each of these bursts, basically what's happened is that there was a bunch of excitement about some technology, but then someone found some limitations and the excitement went away. So for example, in the late 60s, people had been seeing some progress with neural networks, but a lot of that was abandoned. There were big DARPA funding cuts and people stopped looking at neural networks for a while. But then again, in the 80s, people caught on to the work of a particular grad student named Paul Werbos, who wrote his dissertation on training artificial neural networks through backpropagation. And it got a bunch of people excited about how to use these techniques. And so in the 80s, we saw some serious advancements. But then it wasn't until the 90s that people started applying neural networks for real problems, in, such as image recognition, and then in the early 2000s for speech. But in the last 10 or 15 years, since around 2005, 2006, is when we've seen this sort of major, major resurgence of this technique, of deep learning in particular, where we're finding that this particular paradigm of neural networks can work very, very well if you put them in the right setting, have enough data, and give them enough compute. And so really it comes down to, in terms of the history of AI, there's three components to the recipe, algorithms, compute, and data. And compute has really scaled in a ridiculous way over the last 50, 60 years. Starting from the perceptron in 1959 through roughly 2012, what we see is, is basically a two-year doubling time for the compute that was used in each of the big results that came out. So every two years, roughly tracking Moore's law, 
the number of transistors on sort of you know dense commercially viable integrated circuits would double, and that maps onto the progress that we saw for you know 50 years from 1960 to about 2010. But what's happened since then is that that doubling time of compute has gone from not two years, uh, which you know today seems like a long window, but but down to 3.4 months, which is incredible. Yes, so it's really an insane rate of investment in compute and getting the sort of state-of-the-art artificial intelligence results, which is why we're seeing such a sort of a crazy kind of growth in the kind of products that are coming back, that are coming out in artificial intelligence. Got it. And also, I think when we spoke, it's also the cost of computing or storage has come down. And also there's just more data, right, to be able to leverage and build these systems. That's right. Having clean data that represents exactly what you want it to represent is absolutely essential. I mean, so a lot of what we're seeing in terms of the technology that's becoming available today is only available to us because of the internet. We have, you know, billions of people who are now connected almost all the time, generating data, And that just wasn't the case 15 years ago. And so being able to source rich real world data from not just many, many people, but also sensors in the real world gives us a sort of setting in which to apply all of this compute and these new algorithms. And so without data, you really don't have anything to do. Right. Where to start. That's right. So let's talk about neural networks and deep learning. Can you give us an idea in layman's terms, if you can, what is a neural network? Sure. So I guess, you know, one way that I like to think about machine learning is that from a schematic perspective is that you can imagine that you have some box that has a bunch of little gears in it, and it has an input funnel on top and an output funnel on the bottom, and you have some data. And what you want to do, and your data also has inputs and outputs in this toy example. And what you want to do is you want to push in one of the inputs and the gears turn and something comes out. But in the beginning, what comes out is rubbish. And so what you want to do is turn all of these little gears bit by bit so as to make the answer that comes out less likely to be rubbish and more likely to be the actual answer that you want. And so what I'm caricaturing here, this box with gears in it is a deep neural network. And the gears themselves, the components of this system are implemented as mathematical functions. And so the problem is to basically tune all the parameters and the components of this box so that you can get the inputs when you put them in. Some stuff happens on inside this box that's not scrutable to people, but on the outside, on the output funnel, you get the answer that you want. So that's kind of a one way to think about it. And now what's happening here is that the job of the machine is to learn how to map from your inputs to your outputs and to learn the sort of the distribution that characterizes your data. And so what's really critical for these systems is that you know, you're asking them exactly the questions that you want to ask them. And you're giving them exactly the answers that you want to get, which is where, you know, making sure that you have clean data is essential. Got it. And so when you talk about artificial intelligence within neural networks, all those parameters and combinations are done automatically without any human intervention to take the input and create the output that you want. In a way. So we make sure that the data is set up correctly And then the turning of the gears happens through a process called optimization. Okay. But yes, it's not, you know, we don't go in there. We're not manually changing any numbers. Mm -hmm. Numbers are changing on their own using actually the technique that I mentioned earlier, backpropagation, which was as, you know, remarkably, you know, discovered in the mid seventies and, you know, 40 years later, we're seeing how essential it is to, to the of our economy. The optimization process happens in an autonomous way in the machine. 
Got it. And so let's talk about the data. It sounds like the data, the proliferation of data, the quality of the data that exists today has really kind of jump-started, or not jump-started, but accelerated AI. How do you think about quality data, good quality data? How do you know when you have it? So, you know, one of the big releases that OpenAI did this year was GPT-2, which was a model that we trained on vast amount of web source data with a very simple goal. Its goal was just to predict the next word that it was going to see. And so the technique was relatively simple. The implementation was, while complex, it wasn't algorithmic change that we made. It was mostly about making sure that the data that went into the system was extremely high quality and represented what we wanted the model to learn. And, and also scaling up and combining you know, a variety of different complex engineering methods and applying them in one place. The result of this was a model that was really completely you know, blew out of the water anything that people thought was possible before in that it was capable of generating realistic human quality text in long form. And this was something that people thought was going to take a lot longer for us to. You can give this system the early part of a blog post or a news article and it does a plausible job of predicting what the rest of it could look like. This is a very hard problem. And the reason that that it worked so well is because, in part, because the data that went into the system was chosen very carefully. So this data was sourced from high-quality links off of the web, which represented text that people thought was worth reading and worth engaging with. And we filtered it, we cleaned it very well, and the result was very exciting. Another thing we did was we made sure that we weren't splitting long articles into little bits and pieces because if this is something that people were doing previously and you lose all the long-term structure in a document if you split it into little bits. So these decisions about what you're feeding a machine learning system play a huge role in the output quality. And so it's important that the data represent the real world to the extent that's possible. It seems like AI is very much defined by the content that you put in and, and the skills, I guess, you know, for people who are building their skills and knowledge about AI, it's really understanding how to get that data, make sure it's representative of the population or the problem you're trying to solve, and then feed that into the system. That's right. That's exactly right. It's important to understand where it comes from, what it means, and ensure that it means what you want it to mean. So Vedant, you know, I know that you spent some time at, at HubSpot, and I know we've talked a little bit about how data quality and your work there around AI was a significant component. Could you expand upon that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So at HubSpot, I was mostly focused on applying what was happening in research to the HubSpot product. And HubSpot has some really interesting data. So basically, the way I think about it is that you have this big ecosystem, this big graph of of buyers and sellers And HubSpot collects data on the communication and interactions between those parties until a transaction happens. And the sort of big challenge here is to predict which transactions will happen and when, which is the goal of any sort of CRM or marketing system, and to condition what's happening in the interim so you can help people close deals more effectively. This turns into a very wide space of interesting machine learning problems. You know, some of the more interesting ones have to do with 
a lot of the rich information in language data. So we have a bunch of language data in the form of forms people have filled out on websites, emails they've sent, what, you know, the things that they talk about on phone calls, the, you know, chat interactions, all sorts of things like this. And this gives you a sort of rich record of interactions with people and companies and what they're thinking about and what they care about and how it's possible to deliver value. And with all of that information, you can train models to figure out individual components of that very large system. So you could train a single model to predict whether a deal stage is going to move forward based on the information it's collected. Or you could train a single model to a very different kind of thing to predict the words that a user might type that are likely to close a deal if they're chatting with a customer, these sorts of things. So there's really, I think, we're getting used to this kind of technology in some of the products that we use, such as Google Smart Compose, which if you haven't used it, it'll in the background, it'll just predict with gray letters the things that you might want to type. And it does a remarkably good job. So we're seeing that machine learning is becoming pervasive even in language products. And I think the potential for unlocking the information people type into systems is enormous. One of the things that you had mentioned too, Vedan, a little bit earlier, and Seema, it ties to some of the other conversations we've had is, you know, where the data comes from, right, is a thing that I think every one of our speakers talked about as a key to data quality. And he even talked about it just then too, where when people are filling out forms, you assume, you know, certainly in the MR space, they're, you know, filling them out with the right intent, but sometimes they don't even want to, you know, even in the HubSpot world, when they're just getting a white paper, they might want to put down the wrong information so they don't get a phone call from a salesperson. Absolutely. I mean, the fact is that as soon as, I mean, there are many different kinds of people. Some people are just bad actors and, you know, a hard art. They're maliciously trying to fight the system that you've set up. Other people just have slightly misaligned incentives and just want to download the white paper and couldn't care less about your form. But these are facts of the real world. And if you're making decisions If you're implementing automated systems to make decisions using this data, it's important to deal with that kind of noise because it's inevitable and there's really no way around it as you scale up the number of people you're interacting with. You know, I think that's the reality. It's inevitable. And the question is, how do you combat it? How do you deal with it? What are the processes that you have to ensure that you do create that quality standard when using the data that's, you know, sometimes not perfect? Sure. You know, one of the workhorses of machine learning is supervised learning, where the idea is actually exactly what I described with my caricature earlier with the machine with an input funnel and an output funnel. You know, one very simple approach that could be taken here is to take a bunch of the data that you have and, you know, dump it into a Google Sheet and label it yourself or have people who know how to differentiate good data from bad data label it with literally just yes or no, one and zero, for whether this seems like it's representative of real-world data or if it's not. And what it's possible to do with this kind of a thing is train a model to predict when new data comes in whether it's likely to be good or bad. This is basically the standard approach to an industrial machine learning problem if you have the data for it. I love that. Charlie, that sounds very applicable to research. It does. And actually similar to what we heard from one of our speakers, where he talked about how it's part human and part programmatic, right? And so I love that answer. Thanks for that. Another thing to think about is that for a lot of these systems, you might need a lot of data to train a useful model. And so how do you get clever about if you're in a small data setting about building useful systems? And so I'll give you an example of one thing you could do with one kind of field. 
So say people are punching in email addresses of all kinds and you want to know which ones are real or fake. Now, as a human with a lot of prior knowledge about the way people do this, we know of certain modes of behavior that they follow when they put in incorrect emails. One is that they just button mash. Another is that, you know, and these are the kinds of things that can be solved with basic validation client side. But other things are where they'll put in, you know, fake email addresses or they'll make up a name at a real domain. We can build features, procedural features that run on top of this data that use the information that we know to help our machine learning models. So for example, if your input's just an email address and your output is one or zero or yes or no for whether it's real or fake, you could add another input in there that says whether the domain address was mailinator.com. And the model will learn that, you know, more often than not, when it's mailinator.com, it's a threat. Right. Address. It's not a real person. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of applications. For it. I mean, you can go deeper and deeper to teach the machine or build the algorithms to be able to get more finer in terms of predicting or determining if it's good data or bad data. Yep. So this is just, you know, this is called feature engineering. And the idea is that you're going to create a feature for the model to use. Feature being is Mailinator. And you've engineered it because you wrote a little piece of code that can look at that string, the email address, and say yes or no for whether Mailinator is in it. But this is, you know, these are techniques that have been around for a while and ways of thinking that have been around for a while. Some of the, the newer methods of applying deep learning to lots of data involve just directly trying to generate data. And so you could even train a model if you had enough data to try to predict what forms look like. And when a new form comes in, if it looks different enough from what it thinks forms should look like, it might be able to tell you just from that that it's not a realistic sample. I didn't follow that part. What do you mean predict what forms should look like? What does that mean? So the process of generating something is basically equivalent to understanding what it is. And so if you can train a model to create realistic looking forms, okay, then it's better at knowing when if information that's come in from a user is not realistic looking. I got it. Okay. Seema, I can give you a real world example of how these techniques are better than, you know, previous I guess, technical ways to accomplish this rules-based programming. It yeah. took myself and my co-founder about nine years to build the rules to determine what the categories of news categories for uh, certain articles. But Don and his partner... Marco, they were able to do it in basically, you know, two, three months. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> and with the higher level of precision. Yeah, that's amazing, right? Well, I mean, a lot of this is just because it's this trend of compute data and algorithms keep getting better. We keep unlocking increasing amounts of computational capacity and the availability of real useful data keeps blowing up as more and more people come online as we find new ways of collecting information from them. So I think it's going to be a critical skill to be able to get truth from customers and from your market and from you know, potential buyers in general and people who already have your, you know, the things that you're selling and, and have opinions about them and to differentiate you know, truth from fiction. And this is going to manifest as a machine learning and data problem because that's how we're getting all of our information now. Vedants, thank you so much for joining us today. Charlie, thanks for joining I now know why Charlie calls you the grand pooba of artificial intelligence. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and making it easy for us to understand. It was my pleasure. Happy to talk about this stuff. It's a really exciting time to be uh, working in this field and to be able to get access to this kind of data. So yeah, it was my pleasure. Great chatting with you guys. Thank you. Thank you. 
I hope you walk away from this episode with just a little bit better understanding of artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, you know, one of the key takeaways for me is that obviously building algorithms, creating models that are predictive, then that can provide deeper learning are really, really important. But at the end of the day, we have a responsibility to make sure that the data that we're feeding these models are representative of the universe or the population that we want to further understand. And data quality plays a huge part in that process. I want to thank everybody for tuning into this series, the four-part series on data quality. If you haven't listened to the other episodes, please take the time to do so. There's a lot of really good learning in there about different people's perspectives and approaches to data quality. A special shout out to Imperium again. The series would not be possible without their support and vision as it relates to bringing this to you. Again, Imperium is offering a free and fast data clinic. If you're interested, they could do a quick assessment of your data and panel at no charge. All you have to do is visit their website, www.imperium.com. Until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. Peace out. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.